This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. A return guest to Classical Ideas always feels like such a joyous occasion for me. Catching up with a past guest whose work I enjoy brings me joy every time, and I'm so delighted to welcome Dr. Jolion Thomas back on the podcast. Dr. Thomas appeared on episode 114 to discuss his fantastic book, Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American Occupied Japan, and I received such beautiful feedback on that episode from listeners. On this episode, we discuss the year of supporting Faking Liberties, his return to the USA from living in Japan, where we spoke originally, and the work he's been doing in 2021, notably a blog entry called The Two Faces of Religious Freedom, and a discussion on the religiosity of Japan's 2021 Olympic advertising. This conversation felt like a reunion with a friend. So Dr. Jolion Thomas is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American-Occupied Japan, and Drawing on Tradition, Manga, Anime, and Religion in Contemporary Japan. He is currently finishing a book on religion and public schooling in Japan and the United States, which we touch on briefly. And he regularly writes for public-facing venues such as Killing the Buddha, The Revealer, Sacred Matters, and Tricycle, and he is a member of the 2021 Sacred Rights Research Cohort. You can follow Dr. Jolion Thomas on Twitter at JolionBT. So without further delay, please enjoy the return of Dr. Jolion Thomas. Dr. Jolion Thomas, welcome back to Classical Ideas. Thanks so much. It's really good to be back with you. So, Dr. Thomas, um, for anybody out there listening who may not be familiar with you or your work, can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit, just briefly? Sure. Uh, I'm an associate professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania, also known as UPenn or Penn, uh, where I teach courses mostly on Japanese religion, uh, but also on American religion and politics. Uh, and I uh, spend a lot of my time uh, as a researcher looking at things like religion and media, uh, religion and law, religion and politics, and so forth. Wonderful. Well, you have been on this podcast before. I absolutely love having people come back on the show because, you know, that rapport is there. And I always like catching yeah. up with people down the line. So you were here for episode 114. So if anybody out there listening wants to hear your first conversation and appearance on the show, 114 is readily available. But when we talked last, you were living in Japan. We were discussing your book, Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American-Occupied Japan from the University of Chicago Press. 
And I'm wondering about how the rest of that book cycle went for you after we talked, because I, you know, I'm just curious how the rest of that process went, some of your reflections on the book and anything that you may be thinking about in relation to that release time period when we first connected. Great. Yeah. So the book came out in spring of 2019 and I've been so fortunate to have gotten so many invitations to talk about the work um, in multiple countries around the world, uh, in multiple languages. Um, yeah. And uh, and then I've also um, been really fortunate to speak not only with yourself on episode 114, but also with other people, um, other podcasters um, who have, uh, you know, expressed interest in the book and the ways that it connects with a number of different things uh, related to, you know, religious studies, secularism studies, all sorts of stuff. Um, so uh, that's been immensely gratifying. It was also gratifying uh, that the book won an award from the American mm. Academy of Religion for Excellence in the Study of Religion. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was so uh, so honored and um, uh, to, just so honored to receive that um, sort of recognition. Uh, but I think that even more than that, the um, the response that I've gotten in the private messages from people, especially grad students who are working on their coursework or their dissertations or whatever, when they send me a DM on Twitter or a, an email message just saying like, hey, I read your book and I found it really helpful for this thing I'm working through. That's just been, um, that's been amazing. And I should also say that um, with these sorts of things, as time goes on, you also realize the things that you wish you could have done differently or the things that you uh, wanted to address or you would frame slightly differently. So I've been reflecting on that a lot as I work on a new um, book project that's related to the um, to the earlier book, Faking Liberties. Uh, so I'm now working on a book uh, that's called Difficult Subjects and is about religion and public schooling in Japan and the United States after the period of the occupation. Um, and so I'm uh, looking at some of the same types of material, but my story goes from that period of the 1940s all the way up to the present. Uh, and so hopefully I'll be able to uh, share that uh, with you and all of your listeners in not too long. Wonderful. Is the book about like talking, uh, is the book discussing how we teach about those topics in our schools in relation to other countries around the world who may have had like sort of like a past like confrontational relationship, but have moved past that? Is that kind of what, what it's about? That's certainly part of the story. Um, I'm, I'm my, one of the ways that I describe this project is that I'm interested in the question of who calls what religion and why. And therefore, if somebody codes something as being religious, then that might mean that they're doing so to keep it out of schools, or they might code it as being not religious so that they can get it into schools. And I'm looking at Japan and the United States, which are both countries that have, how do I put this? They have formal legal um, prohibitions on direct religious instruction. Mm. And at the same time, they have long histories of people doing whatever they can to try and get religion or something akin to religion into, um, into public schools. So how we teach about religion is part of that conversation, uh, but sometimes it's not um, you know, religious education as such, but it might be something like morality education, or it could even mm. be something like what kids do in gym class. Like, do they do yoga? And is that religious, right? Um, those sorts of questions are driving the book. 
Wonderful. And that's relevant to our country right now as well. Like I see articles coming out of places like Alabama regularly where they're discussing like the religiosity of certain um, behaviors in school and deciding, are we going to allow this or is it not okay? So that's fantastic. And I'm looking forward to that. And I definitely am just going to extend a public open invitation to you to come back whenever you're ready to talk about that book. Because as a teacher myself, who has taught religious studies in a public high school setting and in an online private school setting, that's something that I would be very curious to talk to you more about. Um, so you'll be back. I think you'll have- I'm a third so excited chance. about it. Yeah. yeah. So you were whenever you were here for episode 114, you talked a lot about your origin story for how you got interested in Japan. And that story is already very well preserved in that episode. So I'm not going to ask you to uh, rehash that entire story, but you did just get back from an extended period living in Kyoto, which is where you spoke to me from last time for the episode. And I'm wondering if you can tell about what that experience was like for you living in Japan during the past couple of uh, years, because the world has changed so much since you were in Japan. Uh, and I'm wondering how the last couple of years has gone for you being somebody who is like living between a couple of different countries. Yeah, this is a, a great question. So um, one of the things that I've always found interesting about living in Japan is um, that the ways that people think of, uh, the ways, uh, maybe I should say, the ways people weave religion into daily life um, differs uh, quite a bit in some sense from uh, what we see in the United States. Um, so let me just give a geographic example. Where I was living in Kyoto, when I walked out of my door, the first thing that I uh, would encounter was a, a shrine. And mm. if I walked through those shrine grounds, and um, popped out on the other side, then the next thing I saw was this little wooden shack that was plastered with pictures of this guy, Deguchi Onisaburo, who's the founder of this religion called Omotokyo. I never figured out what was going on with that house. And then if I walked like another few, um, say like, you know, maybe 200 meters or something like that, I encountered a temple. And then another like half a kilometer down the road was another temple and so forth, just everywhere. Um, the, the mountain where I regularly went running and hiking was filled with all of these small shrines and, and so forth. Um, and so the ubiquity of religious edifices in Japan has always struck me, um, especially because it's so directly contrasted with what people say about their own religiosity that most people in Japan won't describe themselves as being religious. Um, so you're asking about, and, and that's just sort of a general impression yeah. that I had even after this, this last, um, this last visit. Now you're asking about what's changed. Um, well, first thing is that we spoke, we must've spoken in 2019 or maybe it was 2020, it had to have been 2019. Yeah. Um, I was supposed to go back to Japan as part of the same fellowship in 2020. And I haven't been able to go because of, you know, the coronavirus, which has been restricting travel for all of us in all sorts of ways. Japan's been um, very strict about keeping people outside of the, the country as a health precaution. Um, so I wasn't able to go back. And that meant that the research that I've been working on has necessarily changed. Uh, I wanted to go talk with people and I can't talk with them. And I wanted to go look at archives that I can't access. Um, uh, and, you know, so I'm still hoping to get back to Japan before my book comes out, but I'm also in the process of just trying to um, think about it differently. Uh, and in the meantime, I've been spending, well, 
before COVID, I was starting to spend a lot more time in Vietnam because of my wife's research. Mm. And so I'm, you know, gradually trying to think about ways that I might be able to weave Vietnam as a, as another site into my own uh, research agenda. Although I have no idea what that would look like at this point. <laughs> I love it. Um, what was your return? Like, when did you come back and was that process challenging? Uh, let's see, I got back in the summer of 2019 and it was actually pretty easy um, okay. to return at that point. Um, what I just didn't expect was what none of us expected, which is that within the next academic year, suddenly we would be pivoting to teaching online and all of that stuff. Sure. Um, but yeah. yeah, I'm glad that you're, I'm glad that you were able to get back during a freely available travel period and that you didn't get like, you know, stranded somewhere or caught out and have to like, you know, figure out your employment situation whenever you were (laughs) supposed to be back here. So I'm glad that it worked out. Okay. One of my friends um, who teaches at Princeton accepted a job at Princeton in 2019 and then had to teach virtually for their first year as a professor at Princeton. And it was like hearing those stories was really crazy. Yeah. I was like, you're, wait, you're a professor at Princeton and you live in England. This is really wild to me. <laughs> um, so it was interesting yep. stuff. But you know, I want to talk a little bit about your year of scholarship this year. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a couple of things that I have recently looked at of yours, and this is just a couple of examples. But Uh, I hadn't read your work in quite some time since I talked to you for the podcast the first time. And when I started looking at what you had gotten up to this past year, uh, I found some really cool stuff. And I want to talk about some stuff from the year uh, 2021 specifically. So um, you have an article that you put out called The Two Faces of Religious Freedom, which came out on January 21st, 2021, just after... January 6th, which is a day that completely blows my mind until the present day, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about where your mind and thoughts were when you were working on this uh, this posting for the Berkeley Center about the two faces of religious freedom. Tell me about the, the context and the time for you when you were working on this piece. Yeah, so I got the invitation to write this piece in, I think it was December of 2020, Um, So this was after the election. It was in the height of this moment when Trump and uh, many of those who wanted to aid and abet him were were denying the validity of the election and and Biden's win. Um, And so, of course, that was kind of in the air structuring my my thinking. Um, But my thinking about the Trump administration and religious freedom um, was ongoing. You know, I published a book on religious freedom and U.S. foreign policy during the during the middle of the Trump administration. And one of the things that struck me was that, say, how do I put this? Okay, so by any objective measure, I think the Trump administration was venal, corrupt, um, and and this is not me as a partisan hack saying this, I just think that if we were to compare Trump with many other US presidents, um, there were a lot of things that seemed to be uh, violations of of standards for the office. Um, You have to work really hard to get impeached twice. But as a politician, Trump's rhetoric was kind of filled with all of these double standards um, for those who were, and he considered his in-group and those who he considered outside, and dog dog whistles for his base. And one of those dog whistles was the concept of religious freedom. So I kept Mm. seeing Trump and other people deploying this language, um, mostly to appeal to um, white evangelical Christians, um, uh, but also to to certain Catholic groups and so forth, um, as a way of saying, I see you, I hear you, I've got your interests in mind, right? 
Um, when it comes to foreign policy, Trump didn't even have to say much because Mike Pompeo was so avid about promoting religious freedom. Now, Pompeo's vision of religious freedom was pretty clearly a vision in which everybody basically had the freedom to be Christian. Mm. Um, he, you know, he played, he paid lip service to the idea that everybody could choose whatever religion um, they wanted. But if you watch the videos of these um, ministerials on religious freedom or ministerials to advance religious freedom, they were called, um, the bias towards Christianity was pretty clear. So mm. I was interested in this sort of uh, language about promoting religious freedom, where it seemed so clear that that language was privileging um, one particular type of religion at the expense of others. I gotcha, I gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, in the piece, you mentioned some predictions as well on how you thought the Biden administration would treat the Trump years and how they would treat it as like an aberration of sorts. And, you know, we are now uh, nine months into the Biden administration's presidency. And I'm wondering if you feel that some of your predictions have come to fruition in your view. So maybe you could like summarize some of the predictions you thought you would have, and then maybe see what the, like how you feel about those predictions now, nine months down the road. Yeah. So as context for my answer, let me just say that we always have to keep in mind that as presidential administrations change, there are, there's a population of career bureaucrats that stays in place at, mm -hmm. you know, places like the State Department. Um, under Trump, we saw a lot of those people leave in frustration. Some of them were fired. Um, I feel terrible for the whipsawing that they must have experienced between the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration, where we have these fairly different uh, um, agendas and objectives. So I thought um, that when Biden came in, he would want to state that um, policies had been sort of um, over the top in some regards in, in, in terms of the Trump administration, and that um, and that the US was going to dial it back and, and opt for a more humane policy. What I could not have predicted was COVID. I mean, mm. we knew basically that there was some sort of uh, virus you know, around at the time, but we didn't have the full blown um, uh, de declaration of a pandemic at the time that I wrote this piece. That's occupied the Biden administration so much. And the focus on getting you know, shots in arms and stuff like that has been, um, such a focus that I think foreign policy has largely taken a back seat until we had the recent withdrawal from Af Afghanistan and that I'll, I'll mention that in a second. Sure. Um, but, but I do think that my prediction holds true in one respect. Um, if we look at the State Department website and we look at the ways that they were talking about religious freedom, um, Anthony Blinken has really downplayed the notion that Pompeo really highlighted. So Pompeo wanted to describe religious freedom as the first freedom, as the most important of the various human rights that are supposedly universal and, and innate to all humans. Um, in a July address, and this is available on the um, State Department website, Blinken said religious freedom is a human right, but it's not more important than any other human right. Now, coming from the State Department, that's huge. Like he was being very deliberate. He was he was going out of his way to make a point. What he's signaling to people around the world um, is we're no longer going to give priority to people who are rendering their claims in terms of religion. We're going to treat all kinds of claims towards human rights equally. And we're not going to assume that religious claims supersede other claims, which is what the State Department was doing uh, under Pompeo. Oh, and that's goodness. a really striking difference. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that is I'm a person who, I mean, clearly people who listen to this show know that I care about the concept of religious freedom and the human right of religious freedom. Like, obviously, everybody knows that that is a position that I would back. But as somebody who has been exhausted by the news for the last several years relentlessly, I actually completely missed Blinken's statements on this. So this is why I love talking to folks like you who follow these things very carefully, because I get to see things that I've missed in world events that are actually important with regards to this. And so thank you for, for you know, teaching me something brand new that I completely missed over the summer. Sure. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. You know, for listeners out there who might be wondering a little bit more about this, uh, what do you see as being the two faces of religious freedom in the United States? Like, what are these like parallel world versions uh, of this concept that we have sort of existing side by side right now? Can you like kind of lay these out for us? Absolutely. So first of all, I have to say the title of my blog post was sort of insider baseball. Um, for those who are really keyed into the religious freedom conversation, they'll know that um, there is this idea of two faces of faith that, um, British former British Prime Minister Tony Blair really harped on, but also George W. Bush harped on. And they talked about this as a way of justifying the American war on terror. Um, so uh, they would deploy language about the two faces of faith and say, those guys have bad religion over there. So we're going to punish them by bombing them. Mm. But we have good religion here. Right. And this became a way for um, explaining why the two countries were allied and why the um, the war on terror was justified. Uh, now, um, other people who work directly on religious freedom, I'm thinking particularly of Elizabeth Shackman Heard, although not only her, um, have analyzed this rhetoric and have talked about the ways that it ends up positing some types of religion as being good, some types as bad, and therefore some types being de deserving of religious freedom and other types being deserving of correction, um, often you know, um, in a sort of imperialistic, if not military way. Now, an extension of, of Hurd's, um, Professor Hurd's argument, and, and something that I also have tried to show in my own work, is that there are double standards at play in terms of the United States, in terms of how we talk about religious freedom at home versus what we expect of others abroad. So um, one very simple example is that the United States generates reports on the state of religious freedom around the world annually. Um, those reports cover the state of religious freedom in every single country, except for one, which is, of course, the United States. Right. The assumption is that we've got religious freedom for, uh, figured out, that we perfected it, that there are no possible problems with religious freedom here, but those people over there have problems with religious freedom, and we um, have the right and the responsibility to teach them how to do religious freedom right. Amazing. And, and, and so then if you look at the, at the domestic news cycle, you see all of these places where it's just like, no, wait, like this person is getting some sort of privilege that this other group is not getting. Why is that happening? Do we call that religious freedom? And who are we to say that we've got religious freedom when, um, and those people don't, when we clearly see an injustice? Now, the example I used in this piece was um, to, uh, Supreme Court decisions that happened within about six weeks of each other, um, both involved almost exactly the same types of situations. Somebody who was on death row who wanted to have a spiritual advisor present at the time of his death. One guy was Muslim, the other guy was Buddhist, and the Supreme Court denied this right to the Muslim guy, but gave it to the Buddhist guy. 
the Muslim guy happened to be black, the Buddhist guy happened to be white. And there's also, of course, the distinction between widespread perceptions of Islam and widespread perceptions of Buddhism, Islam widely being perceived as violent or, um, uh, or, or uh, a threat to, to public order. It's not any more than any other religion. And mm -hmm. Buddhism largely being seen as benign, um, and it's not any more than any other religion. And so uh, if we look at just those two court cases back to back, and we think about them, we think this is not, uh, this is a miscarriage of justice. Religious freedom is not happening here. It's not happening consistently. If it's not happening consistently here, then it's probably not also happening consistently elsewhere, which means the United States sort of project, a project of, project of projecting, can I say that? Sure. Uh, the United States project of projecting religious freedom abroad is this sort of um, global ideal uh, is, is, a, is a flawed project. I, mm. I, and I just want us to pay attention to those double standards um, in foreign policy. Well, I think that you've given a lot of everybody a lot to think about in that regard as well. Me, for sure. Um, I like the ideas that you've you know just been communicating there. It's, you're just throwing so many good things at me here today, uh, Dr. Thomas. I'm so delighted. Um, good questions. But I, thank you. Uh, I love talking to you, and I'm so glad that you're back on the show. This makes me just so happy to have return guests. Um, so... I do want to change gears a little bit because I do want to talk specifically about Japan as well, which is you sure. know one of your your major areas of expertise. And as everyone in the world knows, the delayed 2020 turned 2021 Summer Olympic Games just happened in Japan. And while I was enjoying the Olympic uh, gold medal winning race of the road race champion Richard Carapaz from Colombia or, you know, the performances of Katie Ledecky, um, you were looking at the Olympics in a much different way. And that is the, you know, how Japan presents itself to the world and how religion tends to have a really substantial and centralized role within that outward projection to the world as they promote the Olympic Games and as they promote the country in general. And you uh, hilariously wrote in a Twitter thread that you did that your job is literally to obsess over media and religion in Japan. And I got a big kick out of that. So as the Olympics approached, I'm curious what a person like you who specializes in this area of scholarship, what you were noticing as far as religion in Japan in relation to the upcoming Olympic Games that we all just saw. Sure. So I've um, long observed this Orientalist fantasy in journalistic coverage about Japan. If you go to major outlets like the New York Times or the BBC, sometimes the Washington Post, you get these human interest stories periodically. Um, for a while, I was keeping track of them and the New York, New York Times was running them about once a month. It'd be like, here's what's going on in Japan. And um, I could almost have written the stories in my sleep because it was always some sort of contrast between like zany inventiveness and timeless tradition. Mm. Right? And, um, and so they'd say like in the cobbled back streets of Kyoto, there's a small Buddhist temple where so-and-so is praying in front of a robot. Isn't yeah. that crazy? And, um, and <laughs> Indeed, when I was last living in Japan, there was a new robot android that was unveiled and I went to one of to this uh, opening ceremony and looked at the robot android and then I read all of the journalistic pieces afterwards that made it into a much bigger deal than it was. Um, and so this longstanding tendency on the part of non-Japanese journalists, um, some of whom are based in Japan, some of whom are, are outside, 
um, creates an expectation. It creates an audience hunger for these stories that confirms a bias about a Japan that never really existed, mm-hmm. right? Um, so as we got close to the Olympics, I was um, just paying attention to the to the coverage, and the first thing that I noticed was um, not how foreign journalists were. Um, talking about Japan, but actually how Japan was presenting itself to the world, the Japanese government, that is. Um, And this started with things like uh, former Prime Minister Abe's um, appearance as Mario at the Rio Olympics uh, a few years before, but um, that happened as part of this video. Um, And the videos would always include things like sumo wrestlers and some other thing that supposedly represented traditional Japan. And I stumbled across, as I was looking at these things, I stumbled across this video called, Is Japan Cool? And I Mm. I linked to this video in the thread, but um, Is Japan Cool was basically a bid video trying that the Japanese government had submitted to the International Olympic Committees being like, this is why you should host things here. And what's really striking, and I wrote about this uh, in the thread, is that of a video that's like maybe 90 seconds long, a good 20 to 30 seconds is shots that take place at religious institutions mm-hmm. featuring people getting into religious stuff, um, uh, you know, engaging in religious activity, I should say. Um, so the Japanese government is already trying to push this idea forward. And then Um, As promotion for the Olympics was happening, we see um, other uh, entities also putting this, um, putting this sort of thing forward. So like in France, there was an Olympics ad that had all of these sort of like animated woodblock prints, and they showed like a sumo wrestler like surfing and stuff like that. But some of the backdrop of that was also shrines and temples, right? Um, So anyway, my answer is getting quite long here. But basically, I was just interested in the ways that people would look at, would think Japan or think that they needed to um, elicit a notion of Japan in a non-Japanese audience. And what did they go to? They went to usually a Shinto shrine, Mm. occasionally a Buddhist temple, because that is Japan. Um, And it's a very quick shorthand, but I thought it might, might be a little bit problematic. Interesting. Well, in the thread, something else that you mentioned was the presence of uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites of Japan that are tied to religion. And I'm wondering what some of your your personal favorites are as somebody who goes there regularly and studies this. Yeah, so um, the Japanese government has been working really, really hard to get as many sites as possible designated as UNESCO World Heritage Sites because the Japanese economy is increasingly dependent on global tourism. Mm. And um, I would say to directly respond to your question, uh, you know, I just lived in Kyoto for a year. I'd always lived in Tokyo before. Um, Kyoto really, you know, captured my heart in many respects. Kyoto itself um, is a world heritage site um, that includes a bunch of very ancient buildings. Um, And so you can wander around the city of Kyoto and um, stumble across all kinds of things. Um, Now, the major tourist sites like, uh, I don't know, like uh, the Kinkakuji, the famous golden pavilion um, is like, those are are wonderful. Um, they're also completely overrun with tourists. One of the mm-hmm. things that I love about Kyoto is that if you get off the beaten path, you find things that are just incredible, like these wonderful um, temples and gardens that are tucked away uh, in a back um, back alley. And even things like old aquifers are really amazing, like pleasant things to walk along and stuff like that. So, um, 
you know, there are things like that. And um, I guess I should also mention that there are some quirky things like it must have been back in 2019 or so, I wrote a Twitter thread on what I call the dark side of Shinto, which is like going to this um, random shrine uh, in Northeast Kyoto where people will put curses on other people and, and stuff like that. So wow. um, yeah, it's just like all of the, there's, there's so much texture to, to that city. I love it. Well, in the thread, something else to capture my attention was the fact that so Japan is presenting these images to the world on the global stage in advance and lead up to the Olympics. And the message is that Japan equals Shinto. And you write that that has political consequences. And I'm curious if you can elaborate on that a little bit for me. Absolutely. So uh, the first thing I want to say is that we all sort of labor under the problematic world religions paradigm, which often assumes that there are some religions that are sort of global in scope or universal, and then there are others that are um, national or ethnic. And one of the um, problematic uh, inheritances that the world religions paradigm has bequeathed to all of us is this notion that Japan is essentially a Shinto nation. Now, this makes sense on, on the surface because um, we, uh, it, it seems like kami worship, the worship of deities known as kami doesn't happen in a lot of places outside of Japan. That's actually not true, but, um, but we'll, we'll just uh, take that for a second. But the problem is that if we buy into this argument, then we actually allow a certain stripe of nationalists to frame the debate. And that mm. happens at the expense of um, a number of um, ordinary Japanese citizens, and also at the expense of religious minorities in Japan. So to, to accept the premise that um, Japan is essentially a Shinto nation is one to just accept an essentialist claim, which is something that I think all of us should, should be resistant to. Um, but it's also to say that those people who do not um, venerate kami, those people who do not want to, um, you know, habitually attend shrines are somehow insufficiently Japanese, mm. right? And um, there are some people on the Japanese right, especially the, the far right, that really want to make it compulsory for Japanese people to attend shrines or want to make it permissible for the Japanese government to, um, uh, to, to spend money on shrines directly. Um, there's already a bit of a gray area in terms of the imperial institution, which is understood as being both a symbol of the Japanese people, but is also understood as being a quintessentially Shinto institution. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, when we have this notion that Japanese people are already, um, are, are essentially adherents of Shinto, we run the risk of doing great violence to people living within the country who don't share that sort of commitment. And not only that, but Shinto has um, also been associated uh, with uh, forcible assimilation techniques during the period of Japanese imperialism. And so a lot of Japan's Asian neighbors look at Shinto as being something that is um, associated with colonial violence. Mm. And to celebrate Japan as a place of Shinto to them rings as celebrating Japan's um, forcible assimilation of uh, territories like uh, Korea, Taiwan, and so forth. That's oh, a problem. That's, 
That's so interesting. Well, and so something else I'm thinking about is earlier we were talking about Pompeo's, you know, presentations of religious freedom, what that meant, sort of like beneath the surface, if you dug a little bit deeper. And so for Pompeo, there is a USA equals Christian view in a way that a lot of the Japan equals Shinto media seems to be presenting as well. And I'm wondering if that's a responsible comparison I'm making, or if you might push back on that at all, how do you feel about that? Well, I think, um, I think the comparison is apt insofar as it's such a common rhetorical trope or political claim. Mm. Um, it's alluring, right? I think many people want simple answers and it's very alluring to think, okay, let's look at the world and let's like um, do a paint by numbers of the map. And we're going to look at Japan and we're going to paint it red and say they have Shinto. And then we're going to look at the United States and we're going to paint it blue and say this is a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is so alluring and it seems so compelling. But it's exactly like those maps that we see on election night when states are red or blue. Yeah. But then if you break it down by county level and you, you see just how complicated things are, it's actually like, especially if you break it down by population, you see far more people voted for um, this guy than that woman. But, uh, but if you just go by the state level map, it looks different. That granularity is something that I think we all need to pay attention to and to not be um, too easily swayed by the superficial notion that one country would have one religion, which is effectively to make the argument that all those people are basically robots and that religious doctrine is a program that runs them. I think that's a really widespread assumption and it is utterly false and it really needs to be countered at every turn. Religion mm. is something that people do, but it is just as often an ex post facto rationalization for what they've done than it is a, um, a sort of precursor to their action. And I think we have to pay attention to that. Fabulous. Well, okay. So you've given me so much to think about here and you know, you're, you're back on the show uh, to chat about like your work that you're doing as a public facing scholar. And as you know, I'm talking to the entire cohort of 2021 researchers with sacred rights. And you are, you are already doing so much with regards to putting your work out there in the world. And I'm wondering about your experience of working with sacred rights and how you're feeling about this experience, how you feel that you are growing your own skill sets as a um, a public facing scholar. And I'm just curious about your experience this year so far of working with this fantastic group of people that I've been learning so much from. Well, this group, um, and, you know, first of all, shout out to Liz Bukar and, and Megan Goodwin, who have just done an amazing job of facilitating this program um, and doing so with a lot of flexibility and a lot of patience under the circumstances of an ongoing pandemic and, and, um, and so forth. And, and, um, you know, so my my experience coming into this was as someone who already was doing public outreach. You know, I write for public um, venues uh, like the Reveal Revealer, or Killing the Buddha, or whatever. Um, uh, and I've been on podcasts like yours, um, but I still felt like I wasn't um, I wasn't able to make the transition into a couple of different types of writing. One um, that I feel a lot more confident about now is writing an op-ed mm -hmm. um, and getting it you know, placed in, in a paper in a timely fashion. Um, 
And I think other things that I've been interested in have been just like kind of refining my craft of doing things like the conversation that we're having right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I think um, one very crucial thing that I want to add, and and Liz and Megan are, are, are talk about this a lot, but you know, scholars work so hard on generating knowledge and we tend to write for each other. And that's ridiculous. Like I talk with, when I'm willing to talk with people about the research that I do, um, sitting on an airplane or sitting at a bar or whatever, yeah. more often than not, I'm rewarded by people genuinely being curious and wanting to, to know more. And um, that suggests to me that there's real hunger for um, scholarly knowledge and expertise about religion, but um, we are still working on developing the channels and venues for getting that uh, that information out there. And so I've just been really excited to be in conversation with other people who are thinking through that stuff. Well, I didn't really tell you this in the aftermath of our first conversation, but I got about 10 emails in response to the episode that you and I did before. And several people who had listened to the podcast for a long time told me that your conversation on the podcast was their favorite episode that they had ever oh, heard so far. So that's amazing. Yeah. And you know, um, my target audience for this podcast they're busy people. They're teachers, they're college students, they're professors, like, and a lot of times they're, you know, very, very busy. And uh, I don't often get a lot of feedback on that, but I know that the people out there are listening. And so to, to for people to actually pause and send a message saying your conversation with Jolion Thomas was my favorite episode you've ever done was uh, it really stands out to me. And like those memories are really striking. So um, I'm glad. So that gratifying. You're, yeah. And I'm glad that you're feeling the gratification as well, as far as like, you know, getting that those uh, continuing to hone your craft and put yourself out there more because you've got such fascinating stories to tell. And that's why I love having you on the show so much, but you know, you have another Japan scholar in the cohort, Caitlin Ugaretz. And I'm wondering about what your thoughts are on, on her, you know, collaborations with you this year uh, and, you know, how you're feeling about the future of your field and things like that. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked, asked this question. Um, so first of all, Caitlin is amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I should say that although we both were in the Sacred Rites cohort this year, we actually were split into two different groups. So Caitlin and I didn't <laughs> get to converse directly. Maybe they thought there was too much Japan and they didn't want to have too much yeah. Japan in one group. Um, but Caitlin and I have known each other for years. She was actually my student at Penn. Um, and she took a course with me, I think it was in 2017, called The Politics of Shinto. Um, she was one of a few students who called themselves the Shinto Squad. And yeah. they all got super excited about the, the material. And now they're all um, at different universities pursuing their PhDs in related topics. Um, so, I'm I'm just so thrilled um, to see you know Caitlin Starr rise and to see the really creative ways that she's um, doing stuff with uh, you know the collaborations she's done um, with Andrew Mark Henry for, yep. with Religion for Breakfast and um, her own YouTube channel Eat Pray Anime. Yeah. Um, I, to be honest, when I wrote uh, my book on uh, manga and anime and religion back in 2012 there was so much that I left dangling and I just couldn't get to. And Caitlin has um, done all the stuff that I never like either didn't have time for or just didn't want to do. She's just yes. been awesome. Like talking about things like video games, which I don't have, like, I just, it's, that's not my thing. Um, talking about things like 
really talking with fans on their own terms, being like, all right, guys, so we we all agree that this is cool, but let me tell you why it's even cooler than you think. Mm-hmm. She's so talented at that. And um, and it's been just amazing to watch. Um, you know, recently we, uh, even though we weren't together as, as part of the Sacred Rights groups, um, we did do an event together at UNC Charlotte um, in April. And it was so cool to be able to talk with people about anime and religion with Caitlin, where we, you know, we each did a short presentation, but then we had this really wonderful conversation afterwards. And I just think like, when I look at her, I, I'm like, wow, the future of our field is very bright. And it is a field that is completely wide open to a whole new range of methodologies like digital ethnography, but also a different range of audiences. And Caitlin's showing us how, how it can be done. Amazing. Well, what are some of your goals for the next year or so within public scholarship? I know you have the book in the works too, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, like just some of your, some, some of your own personal goals. Yeah. So I think I promised Eon Magazine uh, um, an article that I haven't written yet, but I I should probably write. I'm running a bit behind on that. Um, That'll be related to uh, my current book project. Um, I'm also in the middle of um, trying to do a public facing um, year long uh, sort of public programming thing here in in, um, Philadelphia. And what I, my vision for that project is to take advantage of the fact that Philadelphia is a major site of domestic and international tourism, Mm -hmm. and that that tourism will only increase as we get closer and closer to the sesquicentennial of um, the the nation's founding. Um, So as we approach that 250 year mark, we're going to be thinking a lot about, um, you know, what does it mean to be an American? what's the role of religion in US history? And my goal is to think about that, not in terms of the official sort of uh, conventionally patriotic response about the founding fathers and how great they were, but to rather tell the story from the bottom up and to tell some of those unknown stories, a lot of which happen in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania. Um, So things like, things that we may not be quite as proud of, like the um, Carlisle Indian Industrial School, uh, Mm -hmm. which was the place that famously aimed to kill the Indian to save the man um, through the means of of Christianizing the students. Um, I think that's an important part of our shared history. And I think that giving people a way to investigate that, um, that um, shows that that in, that sort of investigation is patriotic itself is something that um, that I'm really interested in doing. So I've got grant um, grant stuff in the works for that, and hopefully uh, in two or three years I'll be able to you know tell you more about um, how the programming has come together. But it's sort of like a public education uh, kind of kind of project. Well, that's amazing. And I really hope that you do carry through with that project because the discoveries that have been going on for the last several months in Canada at the so-called residential schools across that country and the recovery of human remains from children who died on the campus but were never returned to their families. I mean, these are sad stories that need to be told uh, because they're honest and they're a massive part of the foundation of these two countries that you know, yeah. Canada and the United States. And so uh, that kind of information is going to come out in the United States and it must come out. So I'm really glad to hear that you are doing that. 
And I look forward to talking to you about that, those projects in the future as well. Um, but in the meantime, where can people find you, uh, Joe Leon, if they want to follow you and the several projects that you have in the works? Yeah, so I'm always on Twitter. My hand excuse me, my handle is JolianBT, that's J-O-L-Y-O-N-B-T. Um, and I should mention I'm on academic leave right now. And when I'm not teaching students, then I always feel like I need an audience, which means that I tend to be on Twitter more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, um, I, I also have a website uh, that's jolian.thomasresearch, all one word, org. And on that website, I share audio and video and links to all of my published work. Um, and there's also news there about my public lectures and things like that. So that's um, the, the single best place to find uh, my, uh, you know, whatever I've been up to recently. Well, Dr. Julian Thomas, thank you so much for coming back and returning after your fantastic appearance on episode 114, uh, which is about exactly 100 episodes ago. So wow. maybe in another 100, uh, we'll, we'll get together again and we'll talk about all the projects that you currently have in the works. And we'll, and I'll say, I'll start off that conversation by saying, so how have you been since we last talked? And then we'll <laughs> keep the conversation going from there. So Dr. Julian Thomas, thank you so much for coming back on Classical Ideas. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Really wonderful. <laughs>